A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello, welcome to this. It is the Rugby Dungeon. I'm JB. Thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. Thank you for subscribing. Yes, I said watching because we have a YouTube channel now. Me and Tim are putting up regular content, so go and find us on that particular platform. And also follow us on Twitter. I'm at Jay Beardmore. This podcast is at the Rugby Dungeon, and also you can find Egg Chasers, which is out every Monday, as it always is, sometimes even twice a week, actually. Has been so for eight years now. That is at Rugby Podcast. Okay. Right, well, there's a few ways to do a podcast. The first one is to get a great guest and simply publish it. But the other way is to get a great guest, interview him for an hour, bin the podcast, build rapport, and then get him back on to repeat everything. So, uh, Mark, thank you for coming on again. It's a pleasure, at last. Yeah. Uh, only a, only an hour-long dummy run last time, eh? Uh, at, mate. Loads of time to spare. <laughs> so, um, how has your lockdown been? Because... Uh, Unfortunately, you've stepped away now from Western Force and Rapid Rugby. That's that's correct, yes? Yeah, well, it was, yes, it was, um, I was out in Perth um, Global Rapid Rugby for, oh, I don't know, six, seven months. I went over in October mm-hmm. of last year um, uh, with the intention, well, not quite knowing how long it would, it would, it would take, you know, but certainly not as little as six months, put it that way, uh, seven months. Um, and the lockdown came, I mean, obviously the whole original concept was very much a sort of Asia Pacific tournament. Yeah. Um, and, you know, once that happened, you just couldn't move teams around. And we, we played round one. The Samoan team got caught in New Zealand for three months. I mean, it was, oh. it was pretty, and you, you had a, you had a bird's eye view of, um, of, uh, of COVID in the very, very early stages. Cause obviously we had a team in Hong Kong, Spent a lot of time in Japan um, trying to build a relationship, or did build a relationship there with, with some Japanese teams. Hopefully, we were looking at 2021. Um, and um, yeah, I remember going through Hong Kong airport middle of March mm. and it was just deserted and yeah. thinking, mm, this is a real thing here. Um, and in the end, you just couldn't, just couldn't operate it. So we pivoted quickly. Um, I came back to the UK because my family, my wife, three oh, three grown up children, my mother is getting on a bit, to be fair, but in good shape, mm-hmm. um, and felt I really should be here. Um, and then got back into Super Rugby with a weakened team in last year. To be fair, we were playing on a really low budget, but did pretty pretty well, pretty competitive. Um, and then I ran it remotely for oh I don't know until. Well, really until last month, if I'm honest. So put a new squad yeah. together, um, renegotiated our participation agreement, 
did a lot. It was great. It was a really, it was a, it was a shame to leave Perth, a very lovely place to live. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a lot worse. It's, you know, sunny nine months of the year. And um, there's a rugby, there's a genuine rugby community there. Um, uh, you know, unlike, I'd say, far more so than, say, Melbourne, where I've worked as well, which is a much less developed rugby union community. Obviously, I was working in rugby league at the time. Yeah. Um, yeah, not what you wanted, but still a terrific experience and um, helped put my successor in place um, who could get into the country. It got to the point I just couldn't get That's back incredible. into Australia. That's absolutely and, incredible. And um, I just couldn't get the border force to agree, um, despite my visa and or, you know, uh, sort of ability to work in the country. It, it just wasn't going to happen. And at some point, you've got to put your hands up and say, look, this isn't good for anybody. It's not good for the organisation. You've got to get somebody else in. So yeah. we did. Now, uh, we'll come back to Super Rugby because um, uh, because that's very interesting. And obviously, the Western Forces mm. are back in the competition now, which is a rapid yeah. about uh, face, actually. But can you just give me a little bit about your background? How did you end up, uh, well, not just administering teams and managing them, but actually owning one? I mean, that's the most incredible thing. And not just any old team, but uh, one in the NRL, one in the NRL, because that's a very valuable property. Yeah, pure, pure luck, really. Um, well, I don't know. I, I sort of played a bit, um, you know, in my tw- I'm from South Wales, right? So, so steeped in when I was growing up, it, the game was absolutely everywhere. Um, didn't, and I, and I suppose that, that, that really shaped my view for all, for, goes all the way back to. You know, starting the game at nine and ten, everybody in the city played. Didn't matter whether you were working class background or a, a middle class background. It was the dominant sport. Not to say there wasn't loads of football in Cardiff, yeah. which is my city, my home city. Of course there was. There's football everywhere. It's it's such an easy game to play. I mean, even you look at you look at participation in football in Australia, which no one thinks is a football country. It's way above rugby league and rugby union and AFL. Amazing. You know, just as a participation game. Doesn't mean it's culturally important. You know, basketball is an incredibly high participation rate in the UK, but it's not got a great lot of cultural resonance for a whole load of historic reasons. But I suppose that shaped me in the sense that I could never quite understand why rugby, when I then moved to England, I went to university in England and then um, and then stayed in London and started playing there. And I just happened to share in a flat with a mate of mine from home and we both played rugby and we were looking for a club to join. And the nearest club, this is what I said by just luck, the nearest club was Saracens, about two miles up the road. Huh. So we went there. Um, and I stayed there for 20 years in various wow. capacities. Um, so what was this? Saracens? I remember mates at home saying, what's the rugby like? You know, because it was very it was great. It, it was very, I loved the traditions of it. Because at Saracens in the, in the, when I joined in the early 80s, it didn't matter who you'd played for before they actually fill in a form where what who you played for school university club whatever and i played a decent reasonably decent level back home in wales and um but you started in the fourths yes. your first game you had to play or was it the thirds yet yeah, that's the third you had to play one game in the third 15 and the really good players went straight to the ones you know never played for the twos but that that was the sort of tradition of the club and I stayed there for 20 years. And my mates at home said, what's it like? I said, look, honestly, the rugby is a really high standard because the Welsh at that time were a bit superior about rugby. Frankly. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I said, but the thing is, there's nobody here. Nobody's watching. 
you know, I come from a culture where rugby was a participation and a spectator sport. Mm. And in London at the time, and the southeast generally, and the north, not so much in the Midlands and the southwest, rugby union in England was a very much a player's game. You played it, you didn't necessarily watch it, with you know exceptions of international games, obviously. But, you know, you used to go and play. I remember playing against Quinns, against Brian Moore. Was, no, John Oliver, I was a hooker. And, yeah. um, you know, Saracens, Quinns. Saracens were on the up. Quinns were where they'd always been, you know, one of the sort of glamour teams. And uh, there was no one there. It was just four and incredible. Thought, this, is, this is really weird. It wasn't what I was used to. And I suppose it shaped me in the way that I've, I've always refused to believe that if it was run in a particular way and marketed in a particular way, but more run than marketed, um, rugby union ought to be a load, load bigger than yeah. it is. And I still believe that now, yes. passionately. I think you and I are completely on the same page here. So from, from there, I was just lucky. I was, I was, um, was going to be ahead. People say, you know, well, what are you going to do? And when I left university, I had a plan. You know, I was going to be a... Headmaster, head teacher by the time I was 35, secondary school, but state system, only in state schools. Mm. And, and and then I was going to go into politics. That was my. Really? Plan. You were going to go, go, go into yeah. politics? Yeah. Now, I was going to go into politics. And I'm judging by your Twitter feed, it wasn't for the Conservative Party. Yeah, it's a good good call. No, you know, no, no, it wouldn't have been, and it still wouldn't be. Um, <laughs> and I suppose, again, I suppose my background, because, you know, if, if rugby union in England is. I suppose in certain parts, again, I do stress this, in certain regions is seen as a predominantly small C conservative sport. Mm. I've always found that a little bit sort of, how shall I put it, irritating yeah. as well. Um, because, again, I came from a part where it was a it was a classless sport. Yes. Um, so, yeah, and, and so it was... Uh, I was going that it, and sport got in the way because it just so happened. Um, won't bore you how I got there, but I was director of oh, no head coach in those days at Saracens as the game went pro, mm-hmm. and I was not that I wasn't very old and, and, and I wasn't experienced enough and I wasn't. If I looking back, it was way too early. But you know, when you're in your early thirties, you think you can do anything, um, and. You know, the game went pro, and I remember being in the very, very first meeting in a restaurant in Gower Street with Nigel Ray and a couple of his advisors and a couple of us from Saracens, who at the time were, you know, we were a good up-and-coming. We were a bit sort of in between the first and second division. We used to always lose our best players to Quinns or Wasps, you know, Jason Leonard and Ben Clark oh, and uh, Justin Cassell and Darren O'Leary and Dan Dooley. And, you know, and then we to keep trawling Essex and North London for more players we were a classic that sort of club and um he had this very nice lunch and at the end of lunch nigel lovely lovely guy incredibly nice still in touch with him you know regularly so so he said well if i put three million pounds into the club and i almost fell off my chair because i think we were running the club on <laughs> i think we were running on the club on about one hundred and fifty thousand pounds a year full stop wow i mean full stop that was it everything um and that That's was that. Amazing. And I sort of decided, I looked at the numbers. I thought, this is this won't last two or three years, but it'll be great fun. I was 34, I think. Hang on. So I let me just to get this right. What, what when, do you think? When did Nigel Ray get involved then? When was that? 96. 96. And he sat down with you guys. So 
so Saracens at that time they were they were good. They were sort of a very high ranking amateur team, I guess. Amateur. Yeah, semi- we, we, we weren't team. very high ranking. We weren't we weren't a Leicester or a Barp or a Wasps or a Quins. Like a Broughton Park type, teams. maybe. No, better than that. No, we were sort of, we were sort of <laughs> we were sort of we would we used to yo-yo between the first and the second division. Actually, to be to be honest, I yeah. mean, we had a we had a terrific year. In I think one year when I was just started coaching, I think it was my first season forwards coach in the first team. We 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 were running second going into the final game. It was ludicrous. We were nowhere near the second best team in the country. Wow, it, it was just ludicrous. So, not- but we had a we had a visionary coach in Tony Russ. We had some great skippers. We had a great ethic. We worked really hard, and we knew what we were. And and I learned a lot from that too. We. We were very, very clear about what we were. And we, we saw ourselves as a sort of blue-collar, battling, you know, not glamorous, out of the West London rugby bubble. You know, there's not much London. You know, people go, why don't Saracens get bigger crowds, you know, even today, given their success? The fact mm. is, it's not a very strong rugby area. I live in it. I still live in the area. And it's not a very... It's a football area. It's Tottenham and Arsenal. Interesting. It, it, whereas West London, where Quinns are, when I went to work there couldn't believe how much rugby there was and i don't mean the top i mean the the community stuff that's just so it's the one little bit of london where rugby's at least comparable to football in terms of popularity so nigel ray sits down with you how does nigel ray know you at this point how is he involved in saracens there's a guy called mike smith who was chairman of saracens at the time who should take a lot of credit doesn't Mm. get much but should take a lot of credit but he went out, he could see the way the wind was blowing. He could say the game was inevitably going to go pro. I mean, I wasn't involved in any of that. I was just the coach. I didn't even get involved in any of that stuff. Um, and um, he found, he went out and tried to find people. And he found Nigel Ray, who was who lived wow. about three yeah. miles down the road. He was with Old Mill Hillians, who was one of our local little um, feeder clubs. He loved sport. He was in his late 40s. And he somehow got a, got in the room, and and we then got dragged along with it. So, what was the biggest budget you had prior to Nigel Ray showing up? We didn't have a budget. Nobody no paid. budget. I mean, I know people don't believe that. I think I, no, I, had, yeah. a, I, I had a Ford Mondeo because I was the coach, and I was working in North Essex to so to used to get up at you know that this is it's just great fun because you've got a lot of energy when you're that age, you know. Get up at six o'clock, go to work, work, come home, finish at about six, drive to training, take training, do selection and everything else, talk to the player till about 11, go home, have a cup of tea at midnight and then get up and do it again. Yeah. And um, that basic, nobody got paid. I mean, I, I remember doing the first contracts. We had two two young players who looked promising, who if it stayed amateur, we probably would have lost like we'd lost all the other players mm. in the previous 10 years. Some bloke called Richard Hill. Whatever happened to him? Yeah, I wonder. Um, and and Tony Diprose and a couple of other very promising. Mm. And of course, we secured them. And then we added Kieran Bracken and Paul Wallace and Roberto Grau and I can Michael Liner and Philip Seller and Paddy Johns. It was like playing fantasy rugby because there was ver- we were very much got first mover advantage. Newcastle and Saracens in the very very early stages secured a a backer yeah. and went in and almost made the market. The the RFU um, sort of 
in their wisdom said, well, let's have a year's moratorium, chaps, and let's see how all this, all this professional rugby settles down. And of course, nature abhors a vacuum. So into this, well, let's not, let's not do anything for a year, came people like Nigel and Keith Barwell at Northampton and Sir John at Newcastle and then Ash Levetta at Richmond and... You know, and, and then suddenly the genie was out of the box. That's incredible. So just think about where you are now and all the things you've done and where you've worked and how you would mm-hmm. manage a squad if you were parachuted in. And just contrast that with what you were asked to do as a guy in his mid-30s who was who coaching. I mean, that's real trial by fire stuff. Yeah, oh, we didn't have a clue. I mean, I mean and looking back, um, it's laughable. But at the time, when nobody's ever done it before, nobody knows what to do. So, I mean, in the very first year, and, and you know, I'll apologise, and I do occur to some of the players now, because I didn't do a very good... You know, I was, I was basically, I was what would now... I was doing all the video analysis, I was doing the selection, I was doing all the recruitment, I was doing youth development, I was doing... I was coaching. I was doing, obviously, running a thing on match day. I, I was the only full-time employee apart from one guy who was the team manager. That was it. It was the two of us. Wow. That was it. And some of the players were, tra- were part-time and some of the players were full-time. So we did daytime training with the players for um, for some of them and then nighttime because we tra- traditionally it was at night, Tuesdays and Thursdays on a muddy under these little little... I think when Francois Pinard turned up, we just couldn't believe it. And looking back, it was it was bonkers. But you learnt a lot. You learnt very quickly, um, and it was you wouldn't miss it for the world, really. No, it's incredible because I now think if I was lucky enough to work in rugby and I had a question, I'd probably phone you. I would. I, I don't. I guess you didn't even have anyone to phone unless you reached out to rugby league or football yeah. or someone. You had no one. To... Cl- no, a little bit to rub. No, you didn't know anybody because that hadn't been your job. I mean, it was literally, I mean, the people who you sort of who were influential was much more on the coaching lines. People you looked up to as an up and coming young coach. And I started coaching at I think it seemed like twenty eight. Um, um, so. You know, once I couldn't play first grade, oh, God, that's Australian, isn't it? We don't say that. I've yeah. been there too, been over there too often. Um, when I couldn't play first fifteen anymore, in about when I got to twenty seven, twenty eight, somebody who was actually quite good came along, and I knew straight away. You know, when you get you turn up at training, that this bloke comes in your position, and you look yes. across and you think, well, I just changed position. About half mega, you go, well, he's bigger than me, he's quicker than me, looks like he's more skillful than me. Hmm, not sure I'm going to play very often, and. And you think, mm, yeah, well, maybe it's time to retire. I had no, I'd worked really hard to get there. I had no interest in working down the grades at all. So, and I was always going to coach. I was always going to coach. Um, started, I think, at 25, taking an under-19 county team when I was still playing. Had some good players. People like Eric Peters were in the team. Kev Harmon, who's now team manager at Wasps, was fly-off. Yeah. You know, all those guys. Um, that was great fun as well. Um, and... Yeah, so I went into that. And you looked up to people like um, Dick Best yes. and Jack Rowell and, and, and people like that. They were the sort of, they were the gurus. And, and, and the business thing was didn't exist. No. It, it really didn't. It's hard to explain to people 
There's a few journalists around who still remember it like that. Stephen Jones was already on the circuit from the Sunday yeah. Times. He remembers it like that. Rob Kitson? Um, he, he must have been one. He's been around for an awful long time. Sorry? Rob Kitson? He must have been around about that time. He's been... Not sure Rob was... was was Maybe he was. Maybe he was working his way up through the ranks. But that, that, uh, Chris Jones... Yeah, uh, but not the BBC one. The yeah, yeah, yeah. Evening Standard for the freelance. There's a few like that, but it's it's quite it, you just forget, and 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 then things accelerate and you adapt, and yeah, it's just it sort of very quickly sort of turns into the. But a, a very occasionally, I do sort of like particularly at things like um, NRL Grand Finals, which are uh, I've been been fortunate enough to go to a number of times, and. Um, you know that's a huge event. I mean, it, it's a bit like it's not the Super Bowl, but it, my word, they do it fantastically well. And yeah, yeah, a couple of first couple of times I went to that, I thought, cool, bloody hell. So, how'd I get here then? I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, okay? But I assume you must have had an epiphany at some point, which is coaching is great and you can influence the team, but maybe you can influence the team and maybe the sport more generally on the business side. Is that is that an actual? Not really. No, <laughs> no, no. I think to be to be to be brutally honest. I mean, I think I I, I got into and I, I've, I've used this. I've said this a lot to people I've mentored since um, in in both codes. Um, I think back then uh, I was I became a head coach too early and mm-hmm. I didn't have enough experience. Yeah. And I certainly don't have an experience of being a professional coach. So looking, if I had my time again, I'd have stayed as an assistant coach much, much longer. Yeah. Um, but of course, as I said earlier, when, when you're in your exactly. early who wants, 30s. Who wants to do you, that? You, 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 who wants to do that? But it, it is actually, if you wanted a lifetime career in it, that is the, you, know, you, you, you often only get really one shot at head coach. And if you don't do it that well, um, you often don't get another shot. Um, yeah. And I probably uh, talked about, was not ready for it in the late 90s. Um, and certainly to go from coaching a team of sort of very honest battlers to suddenly trying to coach a work full of people, full of a team full of world-class players from all over the globe mm. on your own, that was quite a challenge. Yeah. Um, so it, it sort of didn't, so it didn't end well. It was, it was, I was sort of eased out to a degree. Um, and then at one and the same time, I must admit the sort of, I love, I never stopped loving the match day because I came back to do it again in the early noughties at Quinn's and, and with a, with a reasonable degree of success to, to some degree, certainly won a few trophies. Um, but I'd, I had, to a degree, start to think, actually, you know what? I don't want to do this for 25 years. Mm. It looks more interesting to try and grow. It comes back to what we said at the beginning of the, of the, of the show. The, the thing about growing the game, as opposed to an in, it's always been the thing that's really interested me most, or growing a club. Yes. Um, and so the Harlequins thing, that opportunity that came along... Um, Although again, that was just pure luck, really. I'd, 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 I'd handed him a notice at 
Saracens for a whole heap of reasons that I've never talked about and I'm not ever going to, because mm-hmm. um, I like a lot of the people there a lot. Um, so, but anyway, I'd resigned and I was working my notice and I just happened and Quinns were in a really bad state at the time. And I just got offered the, 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 the thing. Um, and yeah, that was a great, that suited me because that was like, oh my God, we're in a complete, um, you know, we're, 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 we're not quite sure what we're doing here. Um, and the team was poor. The stadium was terrible. There was no youth development. It was awful. Um, so we could only, but I thought it was a great brand and I knew it was a really strong rugby area. Yeah. I thought, well, this is great. You've got, you've got your own ground. You've got a terrific name. I hate that word brand, although I do use it. We've got a great name and a great heritage and a great tradition. Undoubtedly. Um, and you've got a, and you've got a really rich rugby area to mine. Why wouldn't you do this job? This is a brilliant job to have a crack at because at the minute it's coming from such a low base. So here's a question for you. You were at Saracens and you were coaching, okay? And you, uh, by your own mission... Yeah, in the, last, in the last year I moved across more onto the commercial side. With you. Honest, from a la- the last few, yeah. So this, so historically, Quinns are the bigger bigger of the two clubs. You mentioned the... Oh, we couldn't stand them. I hated them. I hated everything they stood for. <laughs> well, and I've said this many times. Couldn't stand them. They were the epitome of the sort of... Sort of... I get very... I got quite... I can get, I can get quite chippy. Um, the sort of English upper middle class. Of course, because you're top. Welsh as well, aren't you? Of course, yes. Yeah, so, mm. so that all all links together. So, why well, they... I'm British. Actually, I don't. I don't. I don't I, I, this is my political. But I identify strongly as British. I do as well. Um, and some forced me into a corner. In, born in England. Born in England, only as a baby. Raised entirely, almost in Wales. My mother's Scottish, and all my grandparents are Irish. Yeah, I identify very strongly as British. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm exactly the same. If someone forces me in, into a corner regarding how Welsh I am, I'll sometimes admit to be North Walian, but I, I never say Welsh or English. British will do me just. I would. Just well, I'd, 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 I'd never say I was English because I don't feel English, uh-huh. but I feel British. So anyway, there we digress. There, yes, we quite. Digress. So we digress with all that which you've said about Harlequins and your history at Saracens mm-hmm. and the respective position of the two clubs. Why do you think Harlequins came after you? Oh no, honestly, I've no idea. I, I was sitting on Premier Rugby board at the time for Saracens, and I knew Charles Gillings very, very vaguely. I'd sat next to him a couple of times at meetings, and he just rang. He just happened to ring me up. Uh, I've never really, as I said, you know, I've never really had a plan. It just sort of, they ran me up and I was working my notice and I wanted to stay in the game. I was going to do, at the time, I think I was was planning to do a bit of journalism because I was doing some writing for The Independent um, and a bit of coaching and maybe a bit of commercial and sort of do a portfolio thing. Mm -hmm. That was, I, I decided I didn't want to, or, or I'd have gone back into education. I think that was the other option. Yeah. Um, but it never quite got to that because before I really got to sort of do that, I was still at Saracens working my notice and then I got this job offer. So I went across the other side of town. And, and describe what you found when you, when you got to Quinn's because you've always said you didn't feel that they were in a good situation. That amazes me, actually, because... They had less than a thousand season ticket holders. Let's start from there. Right? Yeah. Their average crowd was about two and a half thousand. Uh, they were 11th in the league. And as I arrived, I watched the first, last two games. I got beaten by 50 points. And as the old 
joke goes, we're lucky to get nil. I don't think we did get nil, but it wasn't pretty. Yeah. Um, and only nine players were under contract, and it was May. Wow. And I think I said, do you, you do realise we start in September, do you? It was, they said, well, we were waiting for our new CEO. I said, oh, great, terrific, thanks. But, you know, again, brilliant owners, fantastic mm-hmm. owners, still there, really in it for the long term. I couldn't have wished for better owners there. They, and we're still in touch. They're, they're lovely, lovely men. Um, and you could see the fundamentals of it were there. But but you see, Quinns have been very successful because they were set up beautifully for amateurism. They mm. didn't want a crowd. You couldn't join Harlequins until 1988 as a member unless you were proposed and seconded. Brilliant. Love that. So it was like a golf club. Um, and it, everyone says, oh, Quinns, back in the day, you know, seven players in the World Cup final in 91, they can get any... But had no youth system. They didn't want a youth system. They could pretty much offer... If you wanted to work in the foreign exchange markets like Will Greenwood or be a lawyer like Brian Moore or um, work in other one or two in the money in the money markets, they had three or four people who could get you an introduction. Yeah. And that yeah. worked beautifully for amateur days because How interesting. and they were in a very strong area as well. So that, it, it worked beautifully. You know, you went from Andrew Harriman, you know, the prince through to the Butcher Brothers and Jason Leonard, who they nicked from us, of course, yep. um, and and everything in between. And But when when it went pro in 96, all those advantages disappeared overnight. It didn't matter who you're getting people jobs because your job was to be a rugby player. Um, it was now about you had to generate revenue, which previously there was no revenue needed because there was no costs. Yes. Now the number of people in your ground actually mattered because it was a big revenue stream. You had to produce your own players because everybody else was going to try and produce them as well. So overnight, and it was four years until I you know, went pro in 96 and I joined Queens in 2000. Overnight, all the advantages Harlequins had had for a hundred and... Let me I better get the numbers right. The people at Queens will kill me. 130 years since 1866 disappeared overnight. That's amazing. And all the disadvantages, for example, Saracens had had, which was no money, couldn't do, couldn't weren't very well connected in the job market, couldn't give too many under under the you know sort of brown envelope stuff, um, couldn't do any of that. We just didn't generate any money, and were not a particularly didn't have any particularly wealthy people. There were one or two, but not many. Yeah. Um, that didn't matter because Nigel Ray was backing you. You had a budget. Yes. And Quinn's did too, but it, it just, whereas Saracens were, didn't have anything to shed, really, of material asset, Quinn's did. Mm. And they had a way of doing things that had been very, very successful. And, you know, uh, it took them a, I suppose I came in and said, look, you, you, you've got to do it differently. You, you've got to, we've got to do that. We've got to build a crowd. We've got to build a stadium. The stadium was terrible. It had one stand and a load of golf seats. And another stand we worked in was full of asbestos, which eventually we knocked down uh, in a, you know, we did a three-phase build, four-phase building program uh, over about 10 years, which got the stadium up to 15,000. And we got average crowds up to 13 and a half and 8,000 season ticket holders. And, you know, and that took 10 years. Yeah. So it's interesting on that because when I go to Quinn's, uh, I've only been a handful of times. It's probably my, one of my favorite match day experiences. I absolutely love it there. 
And well, thank you. And the thing, well, you're quite. <laughs> and the thing which I really like about Harlequins is, I, in fact, I was talking about this the other day. Is they have an identity, and it doesn't really matter if they're that good or that bad. As long as they have an identity, they will survive, and they'll be hopefully successful. Yeah, I, agree. I agree. And one of the first things we did, I remember, in the first two or three weeks, I said, "Paint the goalposts." And I said, so I said Pat, look, look at this stadium. It looked, it was blue because NEC were the partner, the dominant sponsor, yeah. and their corporate colours were blue. And the whole stadium, I said, look at it. It's a terrible stadium anyway, but who the hell plays here? You couldn't tell. Yes. So we painted the post, the six colours, and we painted the seats. All the other, that one one stand was all the, the Carlequins colours, but the others were like blue. Yes. Or something. Yeah, they were. So we painted them all. And little things like, it was all about... Um, but we had a little phrase in the time, you know, people like Tony Copsey and that was a good mate and worked there for me and he was a great mate of mine. Um, you know, um, we just looked silly in a photo together because he's about six foot ten or something. Um, and, you know, we said, we don't care if everyone hates us because everyone used to love to hate Queens and I did too. Yeah. We don't care if everyone hates us as long as they don't live in southwest London. <laughs> that was our thing. Yeah. We, we, we're quite happy. We're quite happy for the rest of you to hate our guts as long as you don't live within an hour of the ground. Yeah. And yeah. that was the great challenge to make the rugby community of Southwest London change their perception of the club. Yeah. Uh, and to go from a club that really didn't want a following to being one that really, really did. Yeah, because I noticed something on the um on the toilet door of all places in the stoop which I felt was really mm. interesting. And it's an advert for, for, for Harlequins Amateurs. And I thought that's really cool because I didn't realise that any premiership clubs had an amateur side. The yeah, sale and CFC. But yeah, I thought still that was going. a really smart touch. Really important. But I mean, the biggest thing was that actually to start, well, well, well there are lots of different things. The stadium was one, but youth development, player development was another one. You know, you, you, you had to start to... I remember saying to the board very early on, I said, look, Johnny Wilkinson lived in our area and he never played for us. That's wow. an absolute disgrace. Imagine He's just down the road. He's down in Farnham. You know, it, it never got close to him. I mean, it, we, we, we cannot go on like this. Yeah. Um, so it was, and you now we had a lot of good people. And look, it wasn't just me, but lots of good people in different areas. You know, Tony Russ would be my old coach and then gone to Leicester Tigers. And he came down and started the academy and he was followed by Colin Osborne, and then he was followed by Tony Diprose. You know, you had three real quality people in a row mm. who ran that, and that produced a whole heap mm. of people from a club that had never produced anybody. So, you know, yeah. you go through that great team they talk about, you know, the World Cup team. Well, Will Carling was from Sedbury in, you know, North York, North Yorkshire. Yep. You know, Brian Moore's from Nottingham. Peter Winterbottom's from somewhere in near Leeds. Um, Paul Ackford was from the West Country. You know, Jason Leonard was from Barking and Saracens. They, they, they used to bring players in. Nothing wrong with that. They did it really, really well. Yeah. But that was never, that model was never going to work in professionalism. It was going to cost too much. You, you, you could do it in the early days with Saracens when no one else was in the market. But once, by this stage, there were, you know, seven, eight, nine clubs in who were playing in the market and the French clubs and all the rest of it. You couldn't do it like that anymore. You had to produce, and I still believe this, you have to produce a significant proportion of your own players. Yeah, yeah. Because otherwise, unless you're going to cheat on the salary cap, you can't put a premiership winning team together 
without having a core for two reasons. One, because you need a you need constantly need to be refreshing the squad from below and with your own players that you produce who've been with you since they were 14, 15, 16. Um, there's a degree of loyalty. There is still. And there's also they you get them at a, at a, at a discount for a little while. Yep. Which allows you to balance your squad salary cap cap up. So you have a more effective squad. Whereas the old way of Quinn's, you could never afford to put that team together if you had to pay market rate. The point was in 1991, there was no market rate. The market rate was, you know, Brian, we got you a great job working for a a city corporate solicitor. Come and do that instead of being a solicitor in Nottingham. And he went, yeah, all right. So weirdly, right, I actually think that the amateur ethos, which made Quinn so successful in the amateur days, is going to come back into fashion soon. Um, so you need still need to do all the things you, yes because you still need to do all the things that you've said develop your players mm. and so forth but if there's a salary cap and it is adhered to your club's going to need to start to sell itself in different ways and one of the ways it might want to do that is say look come down to Harlequins have four or five good years here as a professional rugby player but guess who's going to connect you into the job market in one of the world's bigger cities look I, I'm, I bow to nobody in my um uh, uh, adherence and my belief that you need a whole load of things, including a salary cap, on its own, it isn't mm. enough. It's one of the things you need. And we all know that I don't want to re- go back over the um, the Saracens uh, debacle. But in amongst all the stuff they shouldn't have been doing, some of the stuff they did, which in terms of player career development yeah. and post-career planning, and it's not cheap doing that, but, nope. you know, that does cost money as well, was first class. Yeah, I completely and, and, agree. And, and the, the point, your point you're making, which is if rugby union in England can ever get its act together to bring in a whole load of things like that so that clubs effectively are pretty much all allocating the same amount of money to player salaries. And you assume there's a, you know, you bring in a salary cap collar, and you bring in a squad cap in terms of number of players mm-hmm. you're allowed to employ and all those things you should have, all those things that mature sports have got and that rugby union in England still hasn't uh, for a whole host of reasons, um, you will then get clubs competing in areas where I feel, I suppose as a bit of a purist, they should be competing, which is player welfare, yes. um, post-career, um, uh Weather, uh, um, tactics, the culture, all, yeah. all that sort of stuff. Because I, I, I must admit, I find a competition. It's why I, I love the NRL so much when I work there. I find a competition where it's simply, um, well, if you're going to win this, you've just got to, you've got, you might not be the highest spender, but you've got to be one of the highest spenders, right? It, yeah, it, I find that incredibly dull. Agreed. Because in my mind. That's not what, and I'll tell you why, not because I'm some kind of um, sort of uh, romantic kind of idealist about it, because I'm, so at the top of the show, I'm most passionate about trying to grow the game. Mm-hmm. And football is different because it's, it's sheer scale. But if you're going to grow the game, the way to get people interested in your sport, there's a number of things you have to do and you have to do them for a long time. But one of the things that helps is 
Can you get your league to a point in each year where most fans of most teams at the on the on the on the day of the first game can say to themselves, you know what? We get a good run with injuries. We got a shot this year. Yeah. yeah. You know, we got a, our coach is good, our squad looks pretty decent. We got a we got a bit of depth. We got some good young kids coming through. We'll we'll be well organized. Yeah, we, we could we could do it this year. Yeah. And and, and genuinely mean it and, and believe it rather than just hope. Yes. That I yeah. think drives interest and drives value. And I and then allows you to invest and then allows you to grow. And then you have a virtuous circle or whereby and not just one or two clubs doing it. I mean I do I love my football, all right? Tottenham fan. Um but you look at most of the football leagues around Europe, and I'm not just talking about, I'm not just talking about the Premiership now. You get the odd exception every now and again. The, the, the Leicester City phenomenon, and or Atletico in Madrid might win the odd one in mm. La Liga, or you know, so Dortmund might some. But at the end of the day, you know, you've got a couple of clubs in Germany. You've got a, Scotland, right? Do you really want to be like Scottish football? Nope. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? It's either Rangers or Celtic. Well, I'm sorry, I can't get excited about that. Yeah. And I've got obviously I, my mother's family's from Glasgow, and my cousins don't understand that at all. Well, I don't understand <laughs> them. They're Celtic fans, and they. I said, don't you get really, really bored by this? They said, no, we just won nine titles in a row. Well, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Thankfully, they didn't this year. Oh, and Rangers won. Well, that's exciting, you know. And and you look at that competition, you know, Dundee, Aberdeen, you know, Hearts, they're never going to win it. They, but the, the way it's set up financially, they're never, ever going to win it unless one of the others implodes, like Rangers did, of course, uh, which, chasing and, Celtic. Yeah, but then you need Rangers and Celtic to, to implode. And do you know what? For everything the Premiership gets wrong, in my word, do I have some harsh words for some people in the Premiership? The one thing I will give them credit for, and it's not perfect by any means, but I talked to a handful of uh, Worcester Warriors fans, and they're currently mm. bottom of the table. And at the start yeah. start of the year, you know what? They were pretty confident. They thought, you know, if we if everyone's yeah. fit and yeah. you know JT's a good coach and Solly's all right and this that and the other, the stadium's nice. So they do. Yeah. I mean, you can see that there is something there, and it needs a bit of fine tuning. Oh, Don't get me wrong; it's closer, despite itself. Yeah, yes, it, that's the one I you're looking for. Worcester, Worcester Warriors. By you, I wasn't sure at the beginning of this season that they would be bumping along the bottom either, because mm. you know, and, and actually, some of their first game, their first five, six games, they lost a few of those really in quite tight games. Yeah, but the point is, we're 25 years in. Right. Mm. This is not a this is not a new league anymore. All right, I know the league started in eighty seven, but if you if you go from ninety six, the ninety six ninety seven season, the first professional season, we are twenty five years in, and we should have made, in my opinion, we should have made a lot more progress than we have. We should be a lot bigger. Yep. In terms of interest and crowd size and ratings, the tele- and television ratings. And the sheer scale of it, and I think there's a number of things we could have done as a sport and as a league um, to have helped that. There's no one thing that'll do it. There's a whole range of measures that you need to put in place, and 
if you look around the world at various different sports in various different countries, it's not that hard yeah. to work out why certain sports in certain countries have done really, really well. And I think you have to, you know, and, I, and, I, I, and I don't mean look at football. Football is the exception that proves the rule. It's the one truly global sport. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, the only, it's the only sport that can genuinely, I mean, however hard the NBA is trying to become a global basketball brand, the fact of the matter is it's not a global sport. There are whole parts of the world where basketball hardly touches. Mm. And I mean, I used to tease my football friends who work in football, friends, you know, colleagues sort of, who work in that sport. Yeah, you call yourself, and this is back in the 90s, you call yourself a global game. You don't touch China. You don't touch India. How can you look at that? That's half the world's population. I exaggerate slightly. Yeah. Um, not true anymore, of course. They're making big inroads in India. They've made, although the Chinese league is now looking very, um, but they've certainly culturally broken some big barriers in China. You can honestly say, and it used to be the United States, of course, and MLS has changed that entirely. Um it is a global sport. There's no other sport comes anywhere near it. No. You look at you look. It's not a global sport. Rug, neither rugby coach is anywhere near it. Um, basketball's not. Handball's not. Volleyball's not. There's some individual sports. Golf could claim it, possibly. Um, track and field. Sorry, track and field does the individual sports. The big individual sports, yes. But team sports, other than football, nah. And, and what's football done? Football has over time inexorably brought all the world's best players into four leagues yeah so now if you are a world-class footballer you play well maybe five now with the investment into the french league but not really you play in germany you play in the bundesliga la liga Serie A, or the premiership mm. premier league that's it so they are now that the, the basic they've allowed market forces to um, work to, to, over a long period of time whereby television broadcast revenues are concentrated in those four markets and so they pay much, much higher wages and so all the best players in the world tend to play there and then towards the end, some of them go off to America, some of them go off to China. Yeah. Well, if you think you can re- replicate that, you're an idiot. Right? Because the only way that can be replicated is because the sheer size of the market is so big. There are so many eyeballs. There are so many people who love the sport. You know, there's, give a good comparison. There are something like 1.8 million to 2 million people play football in this country, in England. Play Mm -hmm. it. Not watch it, play it. And then we could have an interesting debate about the relationship between watching it as a spectator and playing it. And there's huge links between those two things. And you look at number, how many people play rugby union? About 200,000. Yeah. But, you know, you know I kind of think with regularly. playing rugby union, I think one of the big things that the unions get wrong is it's not really a mass participation sport. And it's becoming less and less one. You know, I'm not even sure it should be but in no. schools. You know, I think. You're uh, not even sure about Barry. I'm not even sure it should be in schools for the most part. Um, I kind of think like it'd be absurd, wouldn't it, if your local MMA community officer walked through the door and said, "Hey, do you fancy doing a MMA as a school?" You go, "No, absolutely uh, not." Uh, I, I, I'm not. Sure. I, I think you need to be a bit careful. Careful there, um, and I say that as a father of three kids, mm. um, albeit all grown up now. You know, 
there is risk in a lots of things. Oh, and yeah. if you look at the the activities, sporting activities have got the highest risk. It's, it's equestrian. Yes. By a, by a distance, by an absolute distance. I, and I mean all types of equestrian. I don't just mean... I don't just mean steeplechasing. I mean, you look at, you look at show jumping. I mean, it, 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 they're, they're seriously dangerous. The, the stats are quite interesting. Concussion stats are highest in the question. Mm. Now, I'm not saying all the collision sports have got an existential threat from concussion. No question. Um, but um, Which I would include AFL, both the rugby codes, um, American football, Canadian football. Well, e- even football. Get, and Gaelic and... AFL and football. Yeah. All of those sports have got some big, big challenges ahead um, about that. But I think we can work our way through them. We can't ignore them, but Mm. I think we can work our way through them because, for example, boxing, it's still there. Yeah. Well, it used to be in schools. We've known about the risks in boxing. We've known about the risks in boxing for decades. Yeah. Right? And and the risks are real. Yeah. And boxing has had to change. But... Does that mean I think we should stop young boys and girls boxing? No, no, no. no. I don't think that. No, no, no. And that's not what I'm proposing at all. But what I am saying is boxing... So my grandfather was actually um, a heavyweight boxer in school. He hated it, but he was the heavyweight boxing champion of his school. Um, And Mm. now, if you thought about having kids boxing in school, you think, no, that's ridiculous. But boxing does still exist, and it's bigger than ever. When I was at high school... When I was at high school in Cardiff, we did do boxing at school. <laughs> yeah, we did, we did, and 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 it was one of the sports we did, not seriously, but I can remember in a gym, in you know, uh, in in a, in PE, we did a little bit, and then if you wanted to have a go properly, you had a, you went to an after school club, and that was at school. Mm. I'm sure I've done that now, but it did. Um, I'm as long as the as long as you are mitigating the risk and being, you, you can't re- eliminate it. No. You know, and I think if we eliminated risk, we wouldn't be, let people climb mountains, would we? No, we wouldn't cross you the road. There's all sorts of examples. I think the question is more akin to one of smoking. You know, we don't ban smoking, we discourage it. Mm. And, but, we make, but we don't let children, or we try not to let children buy cigarettes. Yes. Right? And, and I think the point you're making is more along those lines. I'm not sure I agree with it no. entirely. So here's, here's, here's my line of thought on this, which is it is risky. And we should embrace the risk and say, look, if you're going to play rugby, there's a chance you're going to get concussed. There's a chance you're going to break your leg. There's a chance that all the things that Dr. Allison Pollock says are going to come true. In fact, there's more than a chance. It's almost definitely going to happen. But I also do agree with what those scientists say, which is, should kids in school be forced to do it? And the answer is no. And if you're not forcing them, you're not compelling them to do it, well, how are you going to get a 15 together? Well, you probably can't. And then we're left with, okay, so do we change the game? Do we concentrate on skills? Do we play touch rugby? And my answer is no, 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 no. We play rugby or we don't play rugby. So kick this responsibility, uh, pick, kick this responsibility, responsibility down to the clubs. Let the kids who want to play rugby thrive in their rugby clubs with community involvement and all the rest of it. Because then all of the people who are saying, well, this is barbaric, it must change, we've got to change the sport forever, they've got nowhere to go because they're all there of their own free volition. I have a problem with that and with my growth sort of obsession. Mm. Because what you are, if you do that, you are effectively seeding urban areas entirely. Yeah, oh yeah, 100%. Let me me give you an example, and I'm really uncomfortable with that. Mm. Um, let me give an example. Uh, the London, each of the London boroughs, I know more about that because I've lived around here for a long time. Yeah. Um, the inner London boroughs all have about a quarter of a million people. 
right? On, on average, they, they, there's slight differences between them, but they have about a quarter million each. So let's take somewhere like I don't know Wandsworth, mm-hmm. Lambeth. Lambeth hasn't got a single rugby club. Yeah, not one. And now someone's going to ring up and say, "No, no, you've well, I, I, I apologise. If there's a very small community club on a park somewhere in Lambeth, I apologise now, right? But as far as I'm aware, Lambeth hasn't got a single one. Southwark's got one. So there's half a million people served by one rugby club. They should be but, very good. Know, if, we ask, if we're serious about social inclusion, which we should be, right, mm. and not just appealing to young people, boys and girls from suburban or rural locales, you can't ignore the fact that schools, which already have some of them, facilities and people, and some even have grass pitches, although there's not a single grass pitch in school in Tower Hamlets, but that is quite an extreme case. Mm -hmm. I, I just don't think as a sport that's trying to do a lot of other agendas should go down that route. I do think, however, we will need to amend how young people play the sport. It doesn't mean you play touch till you're 18 or whatever, but I think, I think it's interesting. And I don't think we know the answer to this yet. How much of the risk is through the sheer volume of training at professional level? Yeah. It could well be it. Could well be it. I mean, if, because if it's about, what about the guys who played in the 70s and 80s, like me? Right? Mm. And we, we trained twice a week yeah. on contact and played on a weekend. Well, actually, sometimes we played two games at the weekend, but that, that probably wasn't very sensible, but we did. Yeah. Um, and certainly when I was growing up, in, in we played in the morning, we played for the school, in the afternoon, we played for the club. So, you know, so that was all a bit, that, that, that was a bit strange. But is there any evidence, and I don't know the answer to this, but I think it's a decent enough question. That whole generation that didn't train every day, mm. that didn't, that weren't as big, that, that the collisions were not as ferocious. What are their health outcomes? Yeah, it's an interesting because question. That's going to speak to how, and I think this is coming, far more regulation about the number of um, contact sessions mm-hmm. in a week. And now I'm talking at the professional end here. Yeah, yeah. Um, how how you know how many games players play mm-hmm. in, a, in 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 a, in a period? Um, <coughs> excuse me. And then the whole monitoring thing. I think there's a there's a very interesting development in AFL this year, which they're starting to use. I remember talking to some guys at Caterpillar that sort of tracking people up in Leeds oh, a few Caterp- years ago. Yeah, yeah. This, where this was going to be possible, the GPS guys. Um, there's a, a sort of smart mouth guard whereby it measures the the severity of the collision mm-hmm. through a sensor. I think it's going to be a combination of those things. Yeah, the, I, the, I think it'll change, not just rugby, it will change all the contact collision sports um, mm. because the threat to them is the same. Because you say, well, we don't play rugby in schools. Well, you're not playing football then, are you? Because they've got a concussion no, problem too. Yeah, so the reason... Okay, so I think we've got two different problems here. So I, this is how I look at it, which is amateur rugby. I mean, someone played before me, and I know plenty of them, and they seem all right. Uh, someone played before you, you know plenty of them, they seem all right. Um, now, I do understand that if I build a sandcastle on a beach and then the water comes up and, wash, and washes it away, 
it get gets washed away. I don't need to understand the risks of it. I don't need to start uh, to, to understand them. You know what happens at molecular level. I don't need to start, understand any of that. I just know. And nobody telling me the risks of amateur rugby or ever going to make me stop. You could tell me it's four or five times more dangerous than what I perceived. If I just wrote down what my perception was of the danger and some scientists came and said, actually, it's 20 times more dangerous, wouldn't bother me. I'm still playing it because I have, you know, my seen world experience of how dangerous this thing is. I know lots of players that played it. Fine. The second part, though, is more interesting. And that is the professional game where sports science does have scientific questions to answer. And I think you're exactly right, which is that has to be limited or the contact sessions have to be limited. We need to understand what is happening to these athletes when science gets involved with them, gets them bigger, stronger, faster, more explosive, uh, because that does sound like it's a potential huge problem. Um, but as far as the amateur game is concerned, I think these scientists should mind their own business. I, I really do. It's up to me what I do on a weekend. Well, yeah, yeah but you're an adult. That, that, that argument doesn't hold for, for kids. minors. No, no, it doesn't, which is why I think we need to probably take it out of schools. I mean, UFC is a phenomenal sport in terms of how it's grown. And talk about social inclusion. I mean, if UFC wants to do a social inclusion program, it probably has to visit the private schools because we all know uh, who, um, uh, who it's appealing to. And it's just got the widest, most diverse range of audience of any sport, probably. Well, I think you and I are going to disagree about that. I would be, I would, I would... I would be very, very reluctant to cede rugby's place within formal education establishments mm. to other sports. I just don't think that's in the long-term interest of the game. And I think it's an overreaction. Yeah, I mean, I can see that argument too. And the problem that we're going to have, and this is undoubtedly going to happen, is people will win this argument. And the people that win it are going to be the people that scream the loudest about the health and safety of kids. What they're eventually going to do is they're going to remove the advantages of competitive team sport from a certain uh, a certain amount of kids, and just hand it all over to people in private schools. But if that's what they want, that's what that's what no, they're going I to get. I don't, agree, I don't agree with that. I, uh, I, I think I, I, I don't think you'll see that. But you know, I, I, I ask, me again, yeah. ask me again in twenty five years. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I sincerely hope not. But the the people who are doing this doing this sort of campaigning. Um, I interviewed uh, Dr. Darren White, who was, who was a lovely chap. I really enjoyed what he had to say. But I thought, like, you know, when the private schools are not going to give up their advantage of of rugby because they see so many other things that happen with it. Um, and asking a state school to coach rugby, unless they're very lucky and they have someone like you on the staff or someone who's obsessed by the game, bloody hard to deliver it in a, um, in a reasonable manner. It depends. Depends where we come back to something. It depends about area of the country you're talking about. Mm. I mean, rugby, rugby, rugby union, for a whole host of historical reasons, it's got major challenges in urban areas. Yeah, that's partly the nature of the game. Partly the nature of the game. It's also partly the nature of the way clubs developed. As I've said, we 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 we, and it's partly the nature of highly dense urban areas. That's particularly true in London. I mean, mm. the, 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 I don't think you you go out and look at rugby league in Leeds, for example, which is a pretty densely populated urban area. There's a lot of junior rugby league in Leeds. Yes, there okay? is. As there is, as there is in, um, as there is in Bradford. Mm. Well, there was. It's not quite as strong as it was, but nevertheless, so. But those aren't anything like as the size or the scale of the, of the London market. So, all right, maybe it is a particular, peculiarly London thing. But I'd be, and so Cardiff, where I'm from, is an urban area, but we 
there's rugby opportunities all over the place. There's there's 20 odd, there were, I'm not sure they're all still going, but there were well over 20 rugby clubs in the city. Mm. So, you know, you were never far from one. And, and I would argue that one of the failings of, of rugby in the last however many years is that we've been, we haven't been ambitious enough to grow the sport in the areas where it's really very challenging for a, for a range of reasons. Mm. And, and, and when I come about that, I say, well, um, it's a lot, but it's a lot easier to get a school program going than it is to get a club program going. A club yeah. program needs, it needs land. Uh, it needs volunteers. Yep. It needs uh, a whole lot of equipment from scratch. Therefore it needs money. Mm. Well, a lot of the, the argument for using the schools as a vehicle is that they've already got the land on the whole, yep. with some exceptions. They've already got a workforce, right? They all already have some financial capability, right? And they, and, and, and yes, you're competing with other options and other sports, but an awful lot of the cost base is already covered. So if you're looking for bang for your buck, I suppose, and I'm not saying that... Um, and there are examples, of course, in, in in certain areas, in certain cities, where it is both either legal union is pretty strong. OK, so why can't you replicate that would be my argument. If you had a genuine interest and a genuine generational commitment to it. So, for example, you know, why don't we choose one high school in each of those 10 in the London boroughs? And, and, and actually go out and it's not going to happen on its own accord. It's not going to happen. Um, or the market is not going to just suddenly deliver it. You've got to go out and intervene. Mm. Well, why don't you choose 10 cut? Why don't you choose 10 schools who've got some grass fields and go and talk to them, put a bit of money into it and run a program. You've already got your fixtures because you've been doing it in each of the 10 boroughs. You've got, you've got nine other schools to play. Yeah. And, and they're all starting from the same point. And, it's about accessing an athletic talent base that at the moment rugby union in most parts of the country doesn't really get anywhere near. The fact that Carl Sinkner, for instance, who's from Wandsworth, is playing test match rugby is very little short of, and I use the term not literally, a miracle. Yeah. I mean, how the hell that kid ever got, you know, he happened to go to Graveney School in in uh, Wandsworth, who happened to be a little bit further out, so they had some grass fields. They weren't right in the very in the north of the borough where there aren't any. And he happened to go to a school where they were running a little bit of a program, and then he found the one or was taken to the one rugby club in the whole borough. Mm. That's the Ironsides, and got picked up from there. Yeah, that is pretty but cool, isn't it? That is just the odds against that happening in London in particular, are very, very high. Unless you intervene and actually put some resources into it to... Otherwise, you're basically saying, well, actually, we don't worry about that type of athletic ability in those areas because we can't touch them. We're never going to access them. Ah, it doesn't matter. We've got enough. Well, I don't think that's the right way. I, I know people would say, well... No, it's all right. We've got, you know, look at Surrey. Surrey. Surrey's got more rugby clubs than any other county in the in the country. Yeah. Um, I don't think I'd ever. I don't, I don't think I'd ever say that. I think what I would say is something along the lines of, if a community really wants rugby, we should support them <coughs> to have rugby. And if they don't, I don't think it's a, the best use of our use of 
our money to go and build a rugby club there or a school program how, because how can, I didn't I didn't say build a rugby club. Yeah, sorry, sorry, sorry. Or build, I mean, even but even at school level, I mean, there are other sports that these that, that these individuals may want to play. It's like you know, can you imagine playing in Car- right. being in Cardiff and then you know an NBA rep shows up says right, you're going to be using up your spare time to be playing not rugby but but. But but basketball. You think no, no, we did. no thank you. We, we, we did play, but we did play basketball. In yeah. The whole point about schools is they rate if you've got any kind of commitment to a rounded education, you you should give your pupils an experience for as wide a range of athletic uh, activities as possible, right? And I would say, and 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 that's obviously some are more popular than others but your mm. point well if a community really wanted one well how can you really want something you never have any access to yes well i mean and you know what you know what comes first i so i look at the so some of the guys that i speak to in america who have set up their clubs there they're absolutely fanatical mm. and i just think that the best way to deliver these clubs so there's morris rugby club over in new york or new jersey sorry if i've got that wrong um mm. And they're fanatical, and because they're fanatical, it's that drive that gets the you know that's got the kids in and set up the youth team. And I would almost, and I don't know the club, but I would, I would, I would make a stab that though the, a lot of the guys who are driving that played it at university. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe. Because if you look at America, uh, there's an awful lot. There is a lot of rugby played at varsity. It's not a varsity sport because of Title Nine, and it never will be because of the whole lot of way, the way Title Nine works. Mm. But yeah, look, I, I I suppose we can get right into the weeds in, in this conversation. And my, my 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 basic point is this: that I think as a sport, both at the elite level and professional clubs, and I've always found club rugby a lot more interesting than international rugby. Uh, yes, hundred percent. I know I'm a minority. Um, but at, at elite professional level and at a horrible word, grassroots level, community level. Mm. Every sport should be trying. That's how competition works. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Every sport should be trying to increase its footprint and to become more popular. If you think it brings, mm. as I, I passionately do, if you think, and I know we're can about up its own ass about how, you know, values and all the rest, and it can get a bit sort of, oh, God, you know. It's, yeah, it's a we bit, back ourselves oh, into a corner so with that. We're so special. I have a few problems with that. But but nevertheless, I do think as a, a lot, I love collision sports. They're my preference. 
I do think contact sports do can, if if taught well and spread well, can bring a huge amount of um, value to the communities that play it. Yeah. And we don't have, I mean, while I've spent so much of my life sort of being in all this, and this sounds terribly sort of, I, mean, I fell into it to a way, but I, but I do actually believe we don't have many things now in Western economy, uh, Western democracies, where we have things that are um, collective, mm. where people come together. My, one of my favourite words, and people who work with me and for me, that oh, I'm not again, Mark, banging on that congregational activity. <laughs> but, I, but I do. The congregational activity, where people come together in one space to play or to watch something of common interest, yes, quite. I think builds a huge amount of social capital. Yeah, right? you're not wrong. You're and, not wrong at all. And I think rugby does it particularly well. I don't say it does it br- so much better than loads of other sports, but it happens to be my sport of choice. It happens to be the sport I'm very passionate about. And I think if you do believe that, you want to make it grow. You yeah. you you don't want to go back to the Quins of the 1980s when they wanted it to be a private club. They didn't want a crowd. That's so- Why not? Because they... They were loving it. They loved the fact that they they almost reveled in the fact that nobody came to watch. Yeah, it's their it, little mm, thing. So that's an interesting point, right? Because it's almost like it sounds nice, and I I agree with you in principle. But I always think about the clubs that I admire most are probably the Northern Rugby League clubs because I used to work up in Oldham, and although Oldham was pretty rubbish and still is pretty rubbish in terms of its league position, it's not a Super League club. There's a hell of a lot no, of people no. that still are very proud of Oldham as a as a rugby league town. But the thing is with these rugby well, league and yet, yeah. and yet, if you if you were to if and I have done some work on this, sorry to interrupt. No, 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 please. You know, I've done quite a bit of done a bit of quite a bit of work for the RFL because obviously I work, you know, my links with the NRL and all that stuff. And if you were, and you know, I have recommended this in a couple of pieces of work, and I think it, I don't know where they couldn't execute it or they chose to execute something else. You don't know. Um, but if you look at rugby league and you say, well, oh, we need to grow. And they, they're constantly, well, how do we grow the sport? It's too small. And I would say, look, you've got a whole area um, which basically includes Oldham. Oldham, Oldham, Rochdale, Halifax, Calderdale, Kirk, parts of Kirklees. That mm-hmm. bit between Warrington, St. Helens and um, Wigan and Leeds, Bradford and the Coalfield and Castleford going on to Hull. You've got this threatened middle that was rugby league a rugby league area and you look at the participation numbers in rugby league there in those boroughs now it's tiny yeah it's tiny another generation it'll be gone yeah and and again it's the same argument we were just talking about 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 rugby union if you if you're passionate about rugby league and i love league i really do Mm. i i I, i'm i'm almost almost equally fond of it i must say and i know that's quite unusual as well but if you want to grow rugby league in England, go back to those areas that have got some cultural resonance to it because they're dying. Yeah, so, I, mean, I mean, another generation and Oldham will not believe, will not remember it was a rugby league area. Yeah, and neither will Rochdale, and neither will Calderdale. You yeah. know, it, it, union uh, sports can die. Look at Speedway. <laughs> yeah, quite, quite. Although I'm, I'm on the, I'm on the verge of. Uh, Bellevue here, and uh, I do keep saying that I should used go to, to be, Speedway. Used to but... be a great rugby league. Used to be a great rugby league team. Yeah, didn't it? Yeah, 
back in the day. So, yeah, and that's a good point. I, I should actually... I, I, we keep threatening to go and watch Speedway for some unknown reason, and we never get around, get, get around to doing it. But, yeah, I, do you know, it's funny you mentioned Rugby League, because I think Rugby League is a lot more to say to kids in it, to inner cities and places like Lambeth or the boroughs of Man, uh, boroughs of London than Rugby Union does. That would be the way that I would now, get lads into uh, collision it's interesting. sports. That, that's an interesting point, because obviously, you know, it was really interesting going to... I worked in Sydney for a bit, as well as Melbourne and, and Perth, and not for long. I was only there for about three or four months working for the NRL. And, but it was the only city I'd been in for a long, long time where, in the park, kids threw a rugby ball about. Mm. Right now, they were mainly into rugby league because rugby league's the dominant code in Sydney. Um, but rugby union is not by no means dead in yeah. Sydney. You know, they worry about it, but it's by no means dead. Um, and there you have, all right, it's a city which has got more open spaces, although there's five million people there, you know, and but there's a lot more places to play and all the rest of it. But it's it's culture as much as facilities. They it, it, in many, many areas of Sydney, not all, but in many, particularly in working class areas in the West, you know, rugby league is dominant. Yeah. You know, so I refuse to believe that rugby union, I know it's more complicated and I don't really care what they play. I just want them to throw an oval ball around and run and tackle and pass. Run into each other, yeah, right? exactly. And what, they to, and what they want to play in the, in, 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 at the end, I really couldn't give a monkeys. I don't care. I just think they're both two great games. And I don't think you should give up on the urban areas. And my criticism would be, I don't think we ever really had a real hot, red-hot go at it. Yeah. Um, for example, there's no constituent body representing London. So the borough of Southwark, one of the most deprived areas, is represented by Kent Rugby Union. Is it really? The borough of Wandsworth, Yes. The borough of Wandsworth and Lambeth, I think, Lambeth, are both represented, I think, by Surrey. Certainly Camden and Islington are represented by Hertfordshire. Yeah. Now, I'm yeah. sorry, if you're serious about it, you need to reconstitute the union to have a London rugby, a London, the, the inner London bit, the, the, the 10 inner London boroughs. Well, take Manchester, which you probably know much better than I do. You know, I do wonder, you know, who looks after rugby union in the city of Manchester, where it's got huge challenges, of course. Um, I don't know the answer to that, but I, many. it probably comes under Cheshire, does it? Yeah. Or, or Lancashire? Yeah, or and you know, club-wise, you've got a handful of largest clubs within the M60. There is probably no more than five or six, I would say, within the M60. I mean, hmm. maybe, maybe there's more. Broughton Park are the highest level of rugby inside the M60. Um but if you if you weren't really going to have a go, at, you couldn't do all the cities. But let's do a couple. Let's start with a couple. You then have to put a structure, a constitutional structure in place that might deliver it. Because of the best will in the world are the the volunteers who run Kent County. Are they really going to spend too much time? Not at all. And focus um, on Southwark. Yeah. So. And, and, well, maybe they are, but I think it's an, it's not the way. If you look at it from a business prism, that's not how you get growth going in very, very challenging new markets. Yes. You'd create a vehicle and that was its purpose. So this is a, an argument I make all the time about a different type of rugby, but I'll, I'll make it for, for the um, situation that you mentioned there, which is... You know, say if Surrey is looking after some of the most deprived boroughs in London, that will never do because 
with the best will in the world, they might say, look, we want to include Surrey because it's got the resources and the expertise. There might be some really you know, good-hearted reasons for doing so. But ultimately, that borough to that union, that will represent a cost. And no matter what you say or how you act, the economics will always come through, which is a cost is a cost, and they're going to focus on the things which... Um, they're most proud of the things the clubs that, that, that they're a member of it's very self-serving so to get yeah. those get those areas really up and running you're going to need to dedicate spaces just to you know, organizations just to those areas otherwise it's just not going to work i agree I, I i completely agree and that way because then they can raise their own funding you can look yeah and i'm like yeah we could you can go on for hours and hours and hours but um i i honestly think rugby's never really quite had a go at it yeah, and the reason we're organised by county in England is it's historic, mm. you know, and it's and it goes back to the eighteen seventy two and 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 how it's all set up, and it it simply doesn't reflect the way the urbanisation of the country, um, and and that's not just true of London, that's true of all the big, you know, Manchester, Birmingham, you know, um, even to even places like Nottingham, you know, um, Bradford. You know, it just doesn't, it isn't the way you'd set out to do it. Um, and look, maybe I'm, it's too ambitious, but I'd, I still live in hope that, um, that at some stage we'll have a, as a sport, we might reconfigure and, well, do a lot of things differently, not just this one. Yeah. Well, look, um, I'd, how are you for time? Wonderful. Wonder, wonderful news. Um, well, Shall we do a bit, a bit of uh, CVC talk? Because as, as much as I love the yeah. community game, uh, let's let's do some CVC talk. Let's go from one extreme to, to to the other. One extreme to the other. I love that. That's why I find the whole. Uh, you, 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 that's why I find sort of running stuff more interesting than just coaching. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, once you get into the, well, what I found out about professional rugby is the more that I know about it, the more I realise I have absolutely no idea. In fact, it's very much like playing rugby <laughs> itself. You know, I, I know how yeah. to run a line-out, a, a line-out really well. And the more I know about that line-out, more people tell me about other schemes. I think, bloody hell, I, have, I know nothing about the line-out in, in, in reality. And professional rugby is right there. So CVC, um, I'll just set this up a bit. Obviously, a lot of people are referring to it as... This is proof that rugby is worth something. It's an investment. A journalist who I really quite like on Twitter uh, extrapolated the value of each of the leagues based on what CVC bought in terms of you know, here's 27% of the premiership that is worth X, therefore a premiership may be worth Y. And maybe it's a good time to explain why that is not true. Right. Okay. Well, look, let, let's start by saying I'm not against the injection of private capital into sport. Yes. Okay. That would be incredibly hypocritical. Yeah. Given that I created my second career off the back of in the private investors coming into rugby like Nigel Ray and Keith Barwell mm. and putting their own money into into their club um, for various different reasons. So, you know, you look at the Andrew Brown saw the Bath back in the day. He did it not because he loved rugby, but he loved Bath and and and. There's nothing wrong with that. Nope. So I, I want to say straight off the bat, I'm not against the injection of private capital into sport. But why do you need private capital? Well, ideally, you want private capital to invest, and well, I mean that properly invest, into things that take too much capital for you to do from internal resources, but that you know will generate multiple revenues down the line. 
That, mm. That's why people borrow. It's why people go to venture capitalists. It's why people go to private equity firms. It's why people go to banks. And yeah. nothing wrong with that. The, the, the problem I have, and you can do it through debt or you can do it through equity. Yes, quite. Um, my, the problem I have with it is when you go to, where I, sorry, where I think it can be dangerous is when sports go to private sources of capital because their business model is bust. Yeah. And, 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 and actually the money then that comes into the sport, if you're not careful, simply goes to either pay up pay off debts already accumulated or to fund ongoing losses for another five six seven eight years yeah um so let's take a, a good example of a private equity deal in rugby recently that i don't think is going to be like that I, time will tell but the silver lake deal with new zealand rugby which is recently and i'm not even sure it's through yet i don't think it's gone through the provincial unions yet but after the 26 okay. provincial unions and it's going to go through the 26 provincial unions and the players union but i think it probably will and the reason i think it probably will is because if i'm <clears throat> if i understand it correctly and i think i do most of that money is going to be put into trying to build certain um direct-to-consumer platforms and digital engagement systems to grow revenues down the line that currently New Zealand rugby don't have access to. Mm. It's not being taken to underpin the Crusaders or to make up a shortfall of community funding. It is a genuinely, here's a lump sum of capital which we couldn't generate on our own. Yep. We're giving up some of our income forever. That's what people the bit people often miss. You know, when a, when a private comes in and says, right, well, we'll pay you, I don't know, 15 times earnings for a 10% stake. Okay? So let's say you got that 10%. So the, you, you give up 10% of your earnings yeah. forever. If you're earning 100 million, you're now only going to get 90. Now, if you can make that up, by how you invest the capital inflow that comes, it's a great deal because <clears throat> the cake's got bigger and you've got to revenues that you wouldn't have been able to get to because you were short of capital. Mm. Um, I worked for a couple of years in netball and uh, incredibly interesting sport. Um, and its biggest thing that's holding netball back so much is venues. We just don't have enough suitable venues really? in this country to house 10, 3,000 seater arenas for basketball and netball, right? You're, you're massively short of capital. Mm. Now, there's a sport I think could benefit from really seriously from an injection of private equity. Yes. Now, do you mean private sure. equity literally or private equity, uh, sorry, in a broad <clears throat> range, as in me being a private uh, investor or... I don't, private think it, is in the I don't think it matters whether it's private, what type of private capital yeah. it is. Let's yes. call it private capital. Yeah. Um, but the scale is often such that at the moment it's it's tending to be private equity firms like CBC and Silver Lake and Bruin and, and, and Providence and, and all these other guys. Uh, sports become quite hot at the moment uh, globally. A lot of it's driven by technology um, and there's a lot of sports technology funds being being set up who are looking for um looking for product so my worry about the deals that have been done in 
English rugby, I suppose, club rugby is, or, and maybe international level as well, is um, I, you know, that the clubs were running largely with losses. Um, there was quite a lot of debt in the club that the owners had put in if they put it in as loan stock as opposed to equity. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and that they were running at a loss. And, and the bit I can't see yet, and I'm not involved directly at the moment, I've only been back, you know, in the country in a little while. Um, I can't see the new revenue streams that are being developed yeah. for the intention of investment. And if you don't develop new revenue streams with that investment, you've given away X percent forever. <clears throat> your cash balances have gone up, but so have your losses. All else, for, you know, at the end of the day, if you were getting, and I'm making the numbers up nice and round so they're understandable, if you used to get $5 million from the broadcast and sponsorship rights in the middle, and 20% of that is no longer coming, you're getting $4 million. If nothing else changes, your losses have increased by another million. Yeah. You know, it's just, it is as simple as that. And that's got to be financed. Now, at the moment, your cash balances are high. You can finance it from that. But only for a certain period of time. Yes. Because... And, and that is why it's the it's the detail of the deal and what the recipients do with the cash injection that determines in the long run or the medium run whether or not that was a sensible thing to do. Yeah, completely agree. So with the, with the premiership deal then, I mean, it, I think you're right in, in pointing out, well, what was the money for? Because if the money was for improved infrastructure or hotels, I mean, I, I, also I'd like to know what, you, what, like, what your thoughts on thoughts on on this are actually. I mean, I hear a lot about, oh yeah, we'll get this money and build a hotel. I'm thinking, like, if you need to run a hotel to subsidise your rugby club, you've probably got this wrong. Um, that's a good point. I mean, well, let me say, and I'll declare an interest. Okay. Yeah. So when we went to Melbourne. And in, in inverted commas, bought the club. We didn't really buy it because we were given money to take it off the owner's hands because it was losing so much money. Right, okay. um, so let's say when we acquired it, yeah. um, part of the model was always going to be in the short run to buy another cash flow generated business. Mm-hmm to sit alongside the rugby to cash flow it whilst we sorted the core business out. Yeah. And effectively, that's what we did. We, 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 we had cash balances, which we then leveraged with debt. Um, so this is again, a bit unlike the rugby podcast, isn't it? I'm sorry. It's um, exactly what I like. But we, leveraged it, we leveraged it with debt and went out and bought another business, mm. you know, bought a gaming hotel, which was throwing off quite a bit of cash. Uh, and we kept it for three or four years, and then we sold it. Yeah. Because by that stage, we'd sorted the rugby out. Now, would we have been able to do that without the hotel, the gaming venue? No, we, we'd have run out of cash. We'd have had to get some cash from somewhere else. So <clears throat> I'm not critical of, like, say, the Rico's model. As a model, I can see the Rico with a, a hotel, a casino, um, car parking, a football club. You would hope, you know, you know that's very... Mm sort of changeable with Coventry City and the history there uh, with Sisu. Um, 
and an exhibition centre and all the rest of it. That model can work. I've seen it work. Quite a lot of Australian clubs work very profitably on that model. If you're living in an area where your market's really big, right? So let's take the Brisbane Broncos, okay? Brisbane Broncos, most profitable, highest revenue team in the NRL, who came bottom last year, by the way, showing yes. yet again that how competitive that league can be. Yeah. The richest, strongest, cash-rich team came stone cold last. That doesn't happen by accident. That happens by design. Yeah. Leave that for another day. They don't need any other businesses because they're sitting on a two million market where there is no competition. They're the dominant sport. Mm -hmm. Rugby league in Brisbane is bigger than rugby union. It's bigger than AFL, bigger than soccer. They're the dominant sport in a two million population market. If you can't make that work, you really ought to get out of show business. But they do. They make quite serious money every year. They're owned by News Limited. Um, they never have to borrow. They play out of Suncor, 48,000. They get 30,000 people every week and they stick to the salary cap like everybody else. They're yeah. a great business. Okay. They, their problems are that they, they've got a terrible roster. The culture's not great and therefore they come bottom at the moment, but they'll come back and they'll go and win a premiership in five, six, seven years time. They don't need another business. Someone like Canberra Raiders. Right, much more successful on the pitch at the moment, but Canberra's only a four hundred thousand population town. Mm -hmm. Right, it's really quite small, and the Brumbies are quite good. Yeah. So rugby union's got a slice of that market. Rugby league's got a slice of that market, and one of the AFL teams called the um, Greater Western Sydney Giants play their some of their games in Canberra. Ah. So you've got you've got. Three, so Canberra Raiders, if they put all their chips on the rugby, that's pretty risky. Because in a in a and, and particularly with Australian crowds being quite fickle, if you start losing, they 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 show their displeasure by they stop coming. Yes. And then they'll come back when you win again. Right? Which is one of the things I worry about the Brumbies. The Raiders have been poor for twenty years. The Brumbies didn't start until the Raiders were in decline. Now the Raiders are back, one of the top four teams in the NRL. The Brumbies have never had to face that. They've never had to face a successful Raiders in the same town. Uh, yeah, okay. Now, so the Raiders diversify. They've got some property assets. They've got some hotel and gaming assets. They've got a whole... And that basically spreads their risk. And I don't have a major problem with that. No. The danger, of course, if you buy a, if you buy a really bad hotel or you... You you buy you do a really you do a really poor um, gaming venue, or you buy some duff property that loses value. You're in you're in real stuck. I mean, that's why someone like Balmain Tigers, right, don't exist anymore. They had to merge with Wests because uh... their ancillary revenues weren't in, weren't strong enough, and it's partly to do with the inner city. They're an inner city club. They they're right in the middle. Um, and the whole socioeconomic area around them changed underneath them, right? And, and, and you know, it's cappuccinos and lattes rather than blue-collar rugby league. Yeah. Know? And, and they, they couldn't adjust quickly enough. So it worked. Oh, okay. I have got a problem yeah. with it. Yeah. All right. So, I mean, I'm still... I do understand why they do it, okay? So I understand that if you've got a really strong brand, like you're... <coughs> 
you know, the uh, Dallas Cowboys or whatnot. Someone wants to stay in the Dallas Cowboys hotel. And that's that's absolutely fine. You know, you're, you can charge a premium uh, for someone to stay in um, that sort that sort of facility. Where it kind of gets a bit sketchy for me is where you just build is where you just built build a hotel. Because if hotels are making more money than rugby clubs, sell your rugby club and just build hotels. So that yeah. and, and, and that and that's a, and that's a problem that I have with it. And a lot of the English owners would say, because I've had spoken to them about it, would say, look, Mark, if I want to run a hotel business like Andrew Bramsall does and yep. did, I'll run a hotel business. And if that will make money and I have to pump some of that money into Bath Rugby, well, you know, yeah, that's fine. It, it's it's cleaner. And I, and I understand that. But you see, for clubs that aren't owned by a single person, like Melbourne Storm wasn't, for example, there were... Mm five of us and i was by far the smallest shareholder so you know and 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 we've exited quite a quite a bit of that i've still got a very 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 small amount just for sentimental reasons <laughs> um and but when you're not owned by a single person it becomes a much a much more attractive model yeah um if you've got a consortium or owning the club in let's say 10 or 11 people mm-hmm. men and women um ideally, then that model becomes, I think, more interesting yeah. because they're all invested in the entity. Whereas mm. if it's a single person, I, I, can, I, can see the, I can see why they would say, well, actually, no, look, I've got a lot of interests and I'm making money there, there and there. And actually, okay, we want to run the rugby club really well, but at the moment... The model is such it can't be profitable, yeah. I mean, and that's the bit I think you, we should fo- you should focus on. Yeah. If none of the clubs can make money, there's something flawed about the business model. Absolutely. So just and, on the and that and therefore the whole hotel diversification argument, I think, is a little bit of a red herring. Yeah. Well, um, I just think it's worth discussing in principle, and I think in principle for certain clubs in certain markets with certain ownership structures, I don't I think it's quite a good model. Yeah. Um, but in, in English Club Rugby Union at the moment, the fundamental problem is the model's bust. Yeah. So the way I would look at the business model and um I, yeah I'd be interested to know your views on, on on this actually. What if all the T V money just, just went to the players? Just that was it. So the so the so the pay settlement for the players okay. was okay. just okay right. so, it's, it's it's 110 million. Every club can has X amount. All has to go to the players, and that's it. If it goes up ne- next year, it goes well, up. If you it goes take, down, it goes you down. take that to its logical conclusion, you pay the players in the same. Actually, you don't even give the clubs the money. Uh, the only reason I give the clubs the money is just to give that you know. So it is, um, you know, so it is still a club based game, and then you've got the lists. Yeah, you know, well, it is of course it's club, but the, the players get paid in the middle if you do that system, which I'm not advocating, by the way, but yeah. in terms of argument, because that that helps you that helps you regulate the camp. And, mm. and, and, and therefore, any any other payments by the club direct to a player is easy to see. Yeah. Uh, it's about visibility. One of the ways you keep going, you, you do it, is you, in a, in a collective bargaining agreement, something else we haven't got in yeah. our sport, which we need, uh, you normally have something called uh, player-related revenues. Yes, and that means what are the what is the total amount of money generated by the through player activities? Mm. Okay, and and because 
and this is particularly strong in in sports where they have other activities like so if you've got a hotel it's got nothing to do with the players that's a, almost like a separate business yes okay so that shouldn't go into the middle but broadcast should mm. and title sponsors and... Can. game game day revenues all the rest of it um and then you in a cba you come to an agreement about what percentage of those revenues should go to player remuneration mm-hmm. so for example in in um in the nrl i don't know the yes i think the last one i think i'm up to, up to i used to be all over this but I'm, I'm a little out i haven't worked there for a few years so i'm a little out of touch um it was 27 28 yeah okay New Zealand Rugby Union, I think it's 35, which is oh. really high. That's a really high percentage. Yeah. Okay? Because that's straight off the top. That's off revenues. You haven't, haven't got to absorb any of the costs. So that's a very high number. Mm-hmm. And certainly in most CBAs, you one of the cornerstones of it is what is that number? Is it 27 or 28? I remember being involved in one and we were we were talking about, is it 27 or 20? We wanted 27. They wanted 29. And bugger me, we ended up at 28. Yeah. Uh, well, what a surprise. Um, the point being then, you then... So that's what the player players as a group get. You then have a whole lot of things about a salary cap and a salary collar and a minimum wage and a whole lot of other things that you need to decide how that, that is divided up amongst the playing group mm-hmm. and how big is the group and what the squad size is and all the rest of it. But it's, it can be done. It's been done in lots of sports. It's by no means impossible. And then you come to the grant to the clubs. If you're not going to pay them centrally, okay, and I, 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 I wouldn't die in a ditch for that principle. Yeah. So if you're going to let the clubs play them directly, you then have to decide what's the grant to the clubs to cover those payments. Mm. So the two, the percentage going to players and the grant are inextricably linked. Yeah. Again, you look at most sports of our type, that number, if you can get to 120, 125, 130 percent, that's where you should be trying to get to. Mm-hmm. Right. So if you then put that into a club, let's say the salary cap with no exemptions, because that just screws everything up, is per club is 10 million. Yep. You want to get a grant to each club to 12. Yep. But you'll only get that if you've got a percentage of the players' remuneration linked to total revenue. Yeah. And there are lots of clubs around... Sorry, lots of clubs. There are lots of sports around the world that run that system perfectly happily, right? And what that means is you can still make a loss if you run your club really badly or actually if you're in a really tough market. So, for example, if you want to expand your league and take it to a a market that hasn't got a lot of rugby heritage or many rugby fans, that ain't the same as running Leicester Tigers. Yeah. Right. Or or Bristol Bears. You know, Bristol's the biggest city in the U in England where rugby is pretty much on a par with football. Yeah. The the rugby league equivalent is Hull. Yeah. They're two quite big cities. Right. And rugby league and rugby union vis-a-vis soccer is about on a par right there aren't many big cities like that i was gonna say wigan um, but that's not Hull a city, is screws it? It. unfortunately Hull aren't better or, because there's two rugby league teams sharing the market yeah and near the twain shall meet but that's a different point so sometimes you go to a new market and you might have to say to a club 
we never do in this country, but you should. You go, well, actually, you're going to a really difficult market. Let's keep the numbers the same. You're not going to get a 12 million grant because you've got a lot more work to do. You've got to invest a lot more money. Your grant's going to be 15 million and it's going to be 15 million for the next five years. Mm. But the other clubs have to agree to that. I see. No, they have to say, you know what? Because what are we trying to do? We're trying to expand the game. We're trying to get more spectators, more television viewers. Because at the end of the day, we can go on about merchandising and ticketing and all the rest of it. Professional sport stands or falls by how much money it can generate in its media contracts. Yeah. And that is a function of how many people know about, enjoy, and are prepared to pay exactly. to watch the game. Yeah. Yeah. So if, but yeah. to make that work without everybody losing money for 25 years, as a sport, so to, just to finish no, this no, off, because it's not just about getting more revenue, because if it was just about getting more revenue, Rugby Union and Club Rugby Union in law will be doing really, really well. Because I can remember back to 2000, sitting around a board table at Premier Rugby going, geez, if only we could get a million pounds in the grant for every club, we'd all be fine. Uh, honestly, yeah. I, 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 people who were in that room now, like I know they were. If you ask them, they tell you exactly the same thing. God, if we could just get a million. Only. Now, that is effectively a 12 million. 12 million distribution. If we just get to that, we'll all be fine. We'd all make money. Well, that number now is something closer to 100 million. It's not quite. Yeah. Not, not now. Not now we've done the CBC deal. But, but, but let's say it's 6 million per club. It's all a bit complicated with EP, um, with payments from the union, all the rest of it. But let's say it's 6 million roughly. So you're distributing 80 million. You used to be ambitious to get 12, but the losses are higher than ever. Well, yeah. To me, that's mad, isn't it? That tells you your model's wrong. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. So, and grow and keep growing revenue. Just keep growing the revenue line. In my mind, without making other reforms, is not going to fix it. Yeah, I'm I'm that's, that's completely it. with you when you talk about all of your competitive reforms, whether it be squad numbers, cap and collar. The one which I absolutely loved. I, we we can't go into it. Well, we can't. I mean, I guess, guess we could, but is things like distribution from England. Like, why don't why does it just go equally to each club? I've never thought about that, but that makes so much more sense than playing per yeah. player. I mean, it's just a no-brainer. Well, see, I remember I remember arguing around the board table. Oh, back in the mid-noughties, when I say, well, it should go to the clubs that produce the England players. I said, well, hold on a minute. And I can't remember the, the player I used. Well, I said, who produced him? Was it his school? Well, should they get some? Was it was it his junior club? Because they helped. Yeah. And he hasn't always been with you, because somebody on another club was arguing this, because they have a lot of England players. Funny, that. <laughs> so, well, he hasn't always been with you, is he? You bought him from when his contract finished from that club over there. So, do they get some as well? Because they produced him. Mm. You bought him. He was 24 before he joined you. In what way have you produced an England player? Why should you be compensated for that? And all it will do, and all it did do, of course, I said, once you put a price tag next to an individual player, <clears throat> his agent will come in and say, because nothing ever stays secret in rugby or any sport, his agent will come in and say, well, I know you're getting 150000 to release him, so I want it on his salary. Exactly. This is my, this, this is my chief bugbear. And, 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 and then you go, no, I'm not doing that. It goes, all right, well, I'm going to go up the road because I know that, all right, you're not going to be anything. 
well, I'm going to go to wasps. I use wasps just as an example because mm. they'll give me a hundred. Yeah. And now you're sitting there going, all right, so what do I do? Do I offer him 50 or 70? The answer is I shouldn't be offering him anything. Yep. Because, because that money is not there so, for him. So, A, the player's missing games. Yep. And B, he's now getting more than you think than you were offering him before. Mm. So you're getting the money in from the union on the one hand, if you link it to players. Yep. Right? And it goes straight out to players on the other hand, which leads you to another issue, which is why in rugby union do clubs pay agents? It's just it's the way it happened back yeah. in the day when I you know when I was around in ninety six. It's just the way it happened. Wages were very, very small and agents understood. So, well, I've gone, put, put the 10% on. It's 40 grand contract, pay us four grand. And we all went, yeah, yeah, all right, fine. Right? Yeah. And those numbers have stayed at around, well, that it can, if you're really not very good, you can still end up paying 10%. So, not very often these days, to be fair, mm. but still seven or eight. Can you imagine this? Let's say a player's on 200,000. Right, but actually, after tax, they're on 120. Yeah, and they had to pay their agent. Their agent says, "Well, I, I get 10. percent I want you to pay me 20." So the player then is actually paying one sixth of his take-home pay to his agent. Oh. Want, I, I wonder what they'd say. I wonder what they'd say. Exactly. Well, they'd say, "Bugger off!" Right, and 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 I'm, I'm not paying you 10. percent I'll pay you whatever, much less. But because the players don't. In our system, because the players don't pay the agents' fees, okay, yeah, that agency stays at twenty, and so it's a cost to the game, right? To the, to the whole league and to the whole sport, money that's generated through internationals and ticket revenue and merchandising. And look, don't get me wrong, I think there's some really excellent agents in the game. There are, and you need agents to make the market work. You do need agents, but let's not kid ourselves; they are representing the player. They're not representing the club. Yep. So, I mean, what other work at walk of life does somebody pay somebody who is not working for them? Oh, it I, just doesn't make any sense. This is one of my... I've spoke about this at length. To the point that I'm thinking now, if I'm an England player, I've only got 12 potential employers anyway. And everyone knows about me, so I'm not paying anything for that. The only thing I can think of, really... Yeah, but players are, quite young, players are quite young men. And going into yes. a negotiation at 23, 24 can be pretty intimidating. Oh, and you don't know the market. And you don't know the market. Is your mate who you play in England team telling... He te- he's telling you he's on 450. Is he? Really? Oh, I, I can split? That. How much of that? And how much of that is image rights? And how much is that? And what's the agent? It's, they, you do need... If I always used to say to the players, if you, re- if you want to stay... And you trust me to give you our best offer within the cap and what yeah. we can other other given other things that we need to think about. You know, you know, we have to get a better fly off and I have to pay for that and all the rest of it. But if you don't really want to move, if you're happy here, I'll get, if you trust me to give me your best offer, you don't need an agent. Yeah. Right. I tell you what, why don't you try this? And I there were I won't mention in their names. One or two players did back in the day, try this quite successfully. I said, tell you what, come in here and I'll give you my best offer on your own. I'll write it down for you. Written offer. There it is. That's the offer. Mm. Right. Now go to your agent and say, I've got this on my own. Right. <laughs> if you can get more, 
if you can get more I like this going. from that club by going into Mark and getting another 30 grand or get 30 grand, 50 grand, whatever more from another club, I'll pay you 10% of the margin. Well, yes. actually, I'll tell you what, I'll pay you 20% of the margin. Love it. Love it. Yeah. That, I mean, that, that, one, that's or two, exactly. one or two, one or two players did do that quite successfully, but funnily enough, it didn't, it wasn't too popular. No. Amongst so uh, look, if I was an agent now, I'd be lobbying like mad for more regulation and particularly around the salary cap, because the way I look at it is, you know, there's 12, 12 clubs. And just to adjust your point about being a young man negotiating. Well, I'm uh, rapidly approaching middle age now. And if I went into a negotiation with Simon Orange and Steve Diamond, I'd lose my shirt. You know, and I've got a fair bit of experience now in doing bits and pieces, so I completely. And you get... work in finance. You're yeah. not a. You're not a. You're not a, a, a normal player, as it were. Yeah. It, even if I if I walk in there tomorrow, it's not going to be. A, it's not going to be a fair fight. So God knows what chance you've got as a 19 year old fly off. So I definitely get that. Um, but I, yeah. I think, well, why not do something fixed fee? I mean, something's going to have to change, or get. Uh, PRL or whoever it is to launch some regulation so that I have to send well again you, you, you have to come back to the to the, one of my and I get you know people say oh Mark you're always on about these things and I, yeah I am and until we and I make no apology for that and I'll keep going on about them until we change it uh, a lot of those things you need to include in a CBA yeah yeah, yeah okay absolutely. so um you know if and, and look CBAs are complicated they take at least they often take a year to negotiate um the one for is it the NBA's one is five hundred pages long. Certainly, the one we had at the NRL was a hundred and something pages long, and it. I, I did a little bit of work helping them prepare for one round. I forgot which round it was. A twenty sixteen round, I think it was mm-hmm. twenty seventeen. Um, and we had we had eighty nine issues, which I'm right thinking right. Okay, what do we want this to cover? Start real basic stuff. Okay, number one, you know, what's the salary cap? Yeah. Number two, what's the player's share of player-generated revenues? But there were 89 of them to you know, holidays, minimum wage, um, player welfare payments, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They're not easy to negotiate. They take a long time. You need some people on who understand what they're doing on both sides. But they last for five or seven or ten years. Yeah, the NBA, look, the NFL was ten years, I think. The NFL has just done a 10-year one, yeah. and five is more normal. Yeah. Okay? But And it's not like rugby union hasn't got one. Australia rugby union's got one. New Zealand yeah. rugby union's got one. These are not these are not alien to the sport. And we what we try and do in rugby is we try and fix one thing on its own, and they're all interrelated. Oh, we've got to fix the salary cap. Well, yes, you do. But actually, until you do a CBA and a salary collar and, uh, a, you know, and uh, you know, promotion, relegation and, and all these other things. You're almost wasting your time because the unintended consequences or the ratchet effect is like playing whack-a-mole. Yeah. You know, you, you, yeah, we'll sort that issue out. And it generated another one. Over yeah, there. like the Chinese kill... kill yeah, the Chinese kill all of the sparrows, and then before you know it, you've got a locust problem. Correct. And yeah. we've never, ever been able, for whatever reason, I don't know, something about the culture of the sport or, um, or what, it, what it is, but we've never, ever been able to get an all... A, not an all-encompassing, that's way too optimistic, a largely encompassing model 
incorporating all of these different elements that you need to say you just well, all you're trying to do really is to align the interests of the different stakeholders mm. you're trying to get the players a fair deal and an interest in growing the game you're trying to give the owners something that doesn't leave them in perpetual losses and allows them to grow the game yeah because if we're always making losses how do you ever expect the individual clubs to invest? Well, here's a question for you, Mark. Do you think now, that... some of them do? Some of them do, but some of them do, and they did in the early stages more into stadia. Do but you, it's you... not. You're basically once you've been, and, that, and that's why then we've ten. We this, the sport has seen it quite a lot. You get a cycle of owners. Yeah. I mean, yes. you're a sale fan, aren't you? Or well, I know it's your local. Uh, I'm, I'm strictly neutral, but they are, but they are local oh, to me. But you, you go to see Sale more than any other team. because Yeah, yeah, issue, I can correct? walk there. Okay, let me ask you a question about Sale. How many owner groups have they had since the game went professional? That's a great question. Uh, Simon Jed, before that there was Brian Kennedy. And before that, I don't know, actually. That was probably... The answer's, the answer's four. Is okay? it? Four in 25 years. Now... That's not a huge, huge, huge number, but it, it doesn't speak to a great deal of stability. Yeah. In the same era, I think Manchester United have had the same owner, haven't they? Uh, the Glazers. In the late 90s. Yeah, Gla- uh Well, who was before Brian Kennedy? When when did he dis- when did he arrive? Ah, uh, well, I could tell you, but it, it's, it was quite it was quite secret squirrel at the time. So ah, uh, right, okay, that. okay. So um, I don't know when Brian Kennedy arrived. Is uh, as far as I know, he was there for as long as I can remember, actually. Yeah, well, there were a couple before that. So, uh, okay. um, you know, and then you could do the same. You could you could look at other clubs and 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 very look at Newcastle. There was Sir John Hall. Mm-hmm. There was David Thompson. There was Seymour Curdy. You know, and actually, <clears throat> you get you get investor fatigue. Mm. You get investor fatigue because people go, well, hold on a minute, gosh. Well, we're making more money, but we're losing more. I mean, when's this going to change? And and and. And the problem is you can't individual clubs when they're winning, you know, they, 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 you can't blame the clubs for looking after their own interests. Mm. The hardest clubs to persuade change are the clubs who at a particular moment in time are doing quite well out of the system as it exists. Yeah. 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 I can appreciate that. So, yeah. Um, do you know what? I've just forgotten my question. Yeah, so, sorry, this, this is what I, I was going to ask. So, would you say the biggest problem with making money in rugby union, or historically at least, is play, is player wages? I mean, that to me is yeah, the deal. Be- be- uh, not just player wages, sorry. Costs generally, and I would not just say players. You also look, have a look at, um, have a look at the number of people who are now employed in the playing side of teams. Yeah. That has exploded. Mm. I'm not saying they haven't got a job to do, of course, but it's a little bit like we can always have a... We've got two physios. Well, maybe we could have three. We've got yeah. two strength and conditioners. We could do with four. We mm. could... You know, we want an attack coach, a defence coach, and a scrum coach. And, and and before you know it, there are... You, you, your wage, your payroll has, has exploded. Yeah. And there are no... Again, I don't know whether it's... Because we've never quite got... quite in this country got past Thatcherite economics, the market will fix stuff. There are certain things the market's really, really bad at. And don't get me wrong, I'm a, I'm a massive fan of market forces in lots and lots of areas, but sport is not one of them. Hmm. Um, 
it just isn't. It works really, really badly. There's a reason. It's not just cultural. There's an economic reason why <clears throat> the most free market or one of the most free market oriented countries in the world, the United States of America, has huge intervention in all its sports leagues. Yeah. Because it makes economic sense. Yeah. Right? It's a bit like, you know, there's a reason we went away from private armies to a national service, armed services. It's because the market's really bad at providing that, that particular activity. Really bad, right? Yeah. Because you end up with civil wars all over the place. It's shocking, right? You don't want certain things. The market's brilliant, absolutely brilliant in terms of generating innovation and bringing in lots of things to market where there's a range of things to choose from. But in sports, if you let market forces, if you let it operate unencumbered, you do get Scottish football. Yes. That's what you get. And I guess what, because, yeah. I mean, I, I guess what you're saying there is it takes the freest market economy in the world in order to give the sports enough freedom to create their, 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 their own, their own e- uh, ecosystem. Yeah. You, you, you sort of go, you have to look at it as growing the league rather than growing the individual yeah. You have to see your, yeah, you have to That's see your product. That's quite difficult. You have to see your product, don't you, as the competition, not the club. That's that's how you oh, absolutely. That, that's just and it. and we've always said that in rugby, but we've paid lip service to it. We've said it, but we've not enacted the changes required to deliver it. Yeah, yeah. So my thought, I mean, just humour me a second. Imagine that you did have all of the TV money going to players. Like literally, that 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 was a deal. All t- all the TV money goes to players. It goes to well, you. It, nearly have. You nearly have got that. So it divides. In fact, into... if you added up, and I'm not party to the numbers. Yeah. But if you added up all the salaries of the 12 clubs at the moment, Mm -hmm. I'd be very, very surprised. Never mind the coaches and the support stuff, right? I'd be very surprised if it doesn't add up to more than the broadcast revenues. So it goes down from the top. It's divided divided into 12. And then each club has a sealed off bank account that's all for players. If it, if that runs out, someone someone needs to go to jail or whatever it may be, rugby jail, and and that's it. Now imagine that I'm the player and everyone gets paid by percentage, right? So your contract is I play for Sale Sharks and I am worth ten percent of the salary cap for five years. So if the TV money drops by fifty percent next year, guess what? I get a pay cut, and that's that's simple, simple, yeah. simple as it gets, right? Yeah, that, that 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 link is 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 something that lots of sports have got. It isn't year by year because you you negotiate abroad. Why are CBAs tend to be five years long in most sports? Is because the broadcast contracts yeah. are five years long in those sports. So now think you, of you your, link the two. Now now think of yourself as a club owner. Okay, so all of your all your salaries are taken care of. You never need to worry about play, paying another player ever again because the TV money does that or the central revenues do that. Instead, but, all but you need to do... My point to go, you, JB, was that that is effectively almost what happens. Yeah, but it isn't already. what happens, is it? Because the clubs are still picking up an extra above that. So by separating them out, you say, look, players, you get what the big... Mean, what do you mean? Well, because if you add up all... The, up a... uh, well, because there is a shortfall somewhere. For instance, um, a marquee player might push you push you over, or there might be so you know there. Are, it's not always the case, is it? That so, if we added up all the player salaries, you'd find that club owners are still subsidising the player wages. Does that make sense? Um, uh, without uh, without 
having access to all 12 or 13 management mm. accounts, I'm not sure about that. Um, what I do know is whatever the percent, whatever the relationship is between the broadcast revenue, you have to be careful here as well, because what do you mean by broad? What, how do you define what is a broadcast revenue and what is a sponsorship, etc.? cetera? Mm -hmm. So, but whatever way you cut it up and how you define broadcast, I would be the, the percentage relationship is of, of salaries and player costs is too high. Yeah. Now that doesn't, it's not all salaries, it, but, but the, the money that all the clubs are spending on their rugby departments mm. um, is too high. Yeah. Uh, give me, let me give you an example. So uh, take the AFL, uh, the Australian football league, the Aussie rules. They don't call it that, but we do. Mm -hmm. They have a, a salary cap and a very sophisticated salary cap and they have a draft. Yeah. Right. And yet they were still concerned that the rich were getting richer and the poor were getting poorer. So a club like my team, Richmond Tigers, and I did live in Richmond. So, you know, that is my local team. Um, would have, a, I've got a, over a hundred thousand members. Yeah. And St Kilda, who are four or five miles away, I've got 45,000 members. Mm -hmm. So there's a massive differential in income. Yeah. Yeah. So although they could only spend the same on salary cap, what happened? Well, the clubs like Richmond started pouring money into their playing department. Mm. More fit physios, more strength and conditioners, more recruitment, more youth development, higher paid coaches. So their football department spend was yes. way, way bigger yeah. than and another, even though their player spend was roughly the same. And this is a good so point, where did actually. players want to go? players wanted to go where they had the best experience to win a trophy. Yeah. So then they said, well, all right, fine. But we fundamentally want uncertainty of outcome as a league. We fundamentally want each club to genuinely have a shot. We do not want permanent cellar dwellers. Yeah. We, we just don't, particularly in a closed league. That's really dull. Yeah. Right. So we're a closed league. We don't have promotion relegation, 18 teams. We'd like to go to 20 started at 14 they're growing hence my point about growth yep so we'll bring in a, a we'll bring in some controls of a player department spend not just player wow. spend yeah that's interesting because yeah. the fundamental thing for them is if we get to a situation where a group of a small group of clubs are dominating the competition we have to intervene for the integrity and the growth of the league. Yeah, yeah, I can that, definitely that's, see that. That's where, they, that's where they come from. And if you look at it, if you start, and, and why? Because they're lovely people. Well, some of them are lovely people. But that's not why they're doing it. Why do they believe that? Because they genuinely believe that's how they grow their revenues and their sport. Yeah, and, that, and, that's, exactly, exactly, and that's exactly right. If you want to fill up your stadium, you're going to need... Better, better coaches. And I've, I've actually thought about that in the NFL, which is the biggest winners from the uh, CBAs are probably coaches, because a lot, of, a lot of those coaches would be there for free. But if you've got no, if you can't spend any more on players, what are you going to do? You, you spend it on coaches. Yeah. Or, but but don't forget, if you do link the two, player wages go up over time. Yes. Don't get this. I, I don't want to keep. I don't want to artificially depress player wages. I just want to allocate a reasonable percentage to player wages, and then we can all get behind what we should be getting behind, which is 
how do we grow the league? Well, yeah, so that's, that's exactly, so that's exactly what I what I'd advocate for, which is players get all almost all the central revenue, all, and literally almost all of it. And imagine if you were a club owner, how could you fail to make money if you had a, a stadium and you weren't responsible for a single player's wage? I I can't understand how you how you'd. Um, yeah, well, I, I I think you'd be surprised. Really. Four thousand, four, yeah. four, four to ten thousand people through through your stadium ev- every week, and you're not responsible for player wages. We're certainly not going to go through the maths on this show. Honestly, <laughs> you, you you actually have to work through a model, and I haven't got access any longer to the to the figures you need to do it, which which works out what at the moment is a re- you do it, you look at it and say right at the moment given the revenues we've got and we know what they are yeah we do well I don't now personally but look they are in. They are available. They're yeah. easy to get hold of at the league or and we need to work out how much we can allocate to player salaries and other playing costs to make this thing roughly make sense. Yeah. And then you start from there and then you grow it. And then you try and grow it. Yeah. Not right. What we do is we we grow some revenues and then we let our costs go. You can do a fantastic I nearly put it in the book. Um, but it, it just didn't work visually. But the, you can, you, I've got it somewhere. You've got a, this fantastic graph whereby you have Premiership total revenues over time, right? And it basically goes up quite mm-hmm. steeply and, re- and steadily. And then you have collective losses over the same period, and they go in a wave, and the wave amplitude gets That's bigger incredible. and bigger. So you, you, what happens is that you get it to sort of break even. We've done this three times as a league now. Three times we've done it. You'd think we'd learn, wouldn't you? You got it to a place in the early noughties when most clubs collect collectively, there were some making losses and some making yeah. profit, but collectively it was roughly break even. And then the clubs, one or two clubs started either with a new owner or because they were making money, spent more. Now the other clubs to compete, spend more. Yeah. So the losses explode. There's your, you're up on the wave. Then it gets out of hand. There's an amnesty, salary cap transgressions are forgiven, happened in 205, 6. Wages plateau, revenues keep rising, you get back to roughly break even, and then it goes off again. Yeah. Only it goes off to a bigger degree. The amplitude of the wave goes up. And yeah, I, then I, you have another round about 2014, 15, when it was swept under the carpet. Yeah. And, right? And then. Everyone gets back nearly to break even in 2016. If you look, if you look at, you know, I'm I'm nerdish enough to go over all the company's house and the accounts, and it got roughly back to sort of, and then goes off again, and it's even bigger. It what what is it uh, that terrible cliche about doing the same thing every time and expecting a different outcome? Uh, definition of madness, madness, is it not? Yeah. yeah. Well, we've done it three times now, and I don't know why anyone expects. If we keep doing it the same way, why would the outcome be any different? Yeah, I guess the only the only silver lining for me is CVC, is that <laughs> which is where we started all this actually. Um, is um, maybe the adults in the room say enough's enough, boys. You, you know, you're gonna have to. But I don't but think CBC, that's a, yeah. I don't think that's on the cards. CBC but CBC aren't liable for the cost. Yeah. Uh, oh, by the way, CBC, completely with you CBC there. CBC's deal is is is, is about percentage of revenues yep and they, we've always been quite good at driving revenues 
Well, that revenue revenue growth has not been the sports problem yeah. for the last twenty five years. You can plot it on a graph. It and, hasn't been revenue growth has not been the problem. And this is what I try and hammer home to anyone that ever listens to our podcast, which is, um, it is literally just re- they're not responsible for the losses. But the people I, I've spoke to in the game do give me the talk about well, now we've got the business expertise around the table, and I'm thinking, well, you, look. Your owner bought a rugby club, and he's got a load of other businesses. I think you've got enough business ex- e- um, expertise, actually. So, say what you like about various people who own rugby clubs, but lack of best business expertise is not one of them. Yeah, yeah, it's not one of the criticisms you could level. Anyway, so, anyway, well, Mark, that has been fascinating. Thank you so much. I really appreciate. Um, I really appreciate your time. You should do a Sorry, podcast, Mark. It, it, it got a bit technical at parts, so I do apologise. As it should that. do. As it as it should do. You should do your own podcast. That's what you should do. Uh, mate, um, yeah, you're all right. I'm quite happy coming on yours. It's a pleasure. Thanks well, I mean, you know, if, I, I guess if you have access to market leading podcasts, why would you uh, reinvent the wheel, hey? But. Uh, <laughs> Uh, thank you so much, and hopefully we'll catch up again Pleasure. in the future. Yeah, I hope so. Keep in touch. All the best. Cheers, Mark. Cheers. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.